Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. I just returned from ASAC conference and from Philadelphia, which for those of you who don't know what ASAC is, it's a conference for sex, sex educators and therapists. And as, as promised, I constantly updated my Instagram accounts and the stories. And I got so much love from you guys in my stories. I always love to hear your feedback and thoughts. And this was a little bit outside my comfort zone because I usually don't post that much, especially in my stories. And something happened that was very interesting is uh, my mom somehow discovered my business Instagram account and started following me as soon as I started kind of posting kind of racier photos. So at the conference, because I was posting, I got this prize for social media presence and they, it was a kind of surprise box in it. And one of the things that I always wanted to do was just to do a kind of unboxing of something live that I don't know what's in it. And I thought, okay, great. What's the harm? Let's do it on my story. And all I was thinking is I wanted a set of dilator. So what dilators are is these are the tools like, like toys that I use with clients teaching them especially if they have a painful intercourse and what to do and how to use it. And they're kind of pricey. And I thought perhaps it could be one of those things or exciting sex toys. And so I opened it up with a bunch of lubricant and condom, which are helpful, but it wasn't, I was kind of disappointed that wasn't the dilator. But later on, I, <laughs> I heard from my mom that she said like, oh my God, as you were opening it, I was hoping that's not a sex toy. So she knows I'm a sex therapist, but funny enough, it seems like she draws a line around kind of sex toy and dilators and all of those things are not okay. But I guess it's okay to talk about sex and be a sex therapist. Anyhow, I thought that was funny. And I thought I would share it with you guys. Anyhow, today our conversation is around recovery from sexual abuse. Our guest is Rachel Grant. She is a therapist. She holds a um, MA in counseling psychology. She uh, She's the owner and founder of Rachel Grant Coaching and is a sexual abuse recovery coach. She's also the author of Beyond Surviving, the final stage in recovery from sexual abuse. She has a program, as I mentioned, called Beyond Surviving that has been specifically designed to change the way we think about and heal from abuse based on her educational training study of neuroscience and lessons learned from her own journey. She has successfully used this program since 2007 to help her clients break free from the past and move on with their lives. This was an excellent interview. I appreciate that she she shared her some of her own trauma story. And I, I'm thinking that possibly can be triggering for some of you guys. So if for any reason after, after listening to this audio, you're experiencing strong emotions related to your trauma, or overall you are looking for resources to get support around some of these challenges, I encourage you to visit, visit Drain Online's hotline 
And also, if if you're feeling triggered and you're having a strong emotion, you can always call National Sexual Assault Hotline. Their number is 800-656-4673. Here's the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. As I mentioned during the introduction, I am so excited and honored to have Rachel Grant with us. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Oh, thank you, Nazanin. I'm so glad to be here with you. I am so excited to have you on this show. I know we're going to talk about childhood sexual abuse, and this is such a, a common challenge that many, at least the clients that I see in my practice, are struggling with, that they have the history mm-hmm. of abuse, and yeah. now they feel it's impacting their sexuality, and they want to make sure that they are addressing some of the aftermath and some of the things that could have mm-hmm. like from past that now is impacting their experience of receiving pleasure and giving pleasure. So I'm kind of curious. It's such a, to me, tough kind of subject, can be very triggering to focus on. I'm kind of curious, how did you get get interested to do this work? Mm. So it really is born out of my own journey of healing from sexual trauma. When I was five years old, my grandfather came to live with my family. And I was super excited about that at the time, Nezanin, because my older sister and brother were much older, like nine and 10 years older than me. And so they didn't pay me much mind. And I thought, aha, my grandfather, a captive audience. (laughs) (laughs) And he was, you know, I would come home from school and I'd go straight to his room and we would talk and play and color and watch TV and sit out on the front porch together. And so he was really a very close friend and companion for me. When I was 10 years old, one day we were sitting out on the front porch like we always had and I was cuddled up next to him like I always did. But that day he reached around and began touching my breast. And I experienced it as, oh, he just doesn't realize where he's touching me, right? It's just Mm -hmm. a mistake. And so I start to wiggle and try to to kind of move away from him. And he grips a hold of me a bit tighter. And then I realized, uh oh, something's going down. Something's not quite right here. And in that moment, I dissociated. I didn't know that's what I was doing at the time, of course, but I definitely kind of floated away and wasn't really clear about what was going on. And when I snapped to, I I broke away from my grandfather and I ran straight to my parents' bedroom and I was crying and upset as one does when they experience trauma. And it still amazes me to this day how quickly following a trauma or start of of abuse that we go straight to trying to understand why this is happening to us. And in our child mind, we so quickly make it about ourselves. So I immediately felt that, Nazanin, like, I've done something bad. There's something wrong with me. Oh, my gosh, what did I do? And um, so I'm, you know, in that space so quickly and so immediately. And as the abuse continued over time and got worse, those sorts of feelings of feeling worthless and unlovable and bad just compounded. One day, my mom happened to see what was happening and she immediately and my father immediately got my grandfather out of the house. He was moved in with an aunt and I was really appreciative of that at the time and still am today because I know having done this work for 12 years and witnessed many survivor stories that that's often not the case to get that kind of support and um, reassurance. But 
even though he was gone, that hadn't really changed the way I was feeling about myself. And my parents wanted me to go to counseling, but I was like, are, are you kidding me? I'm not talking about this. I'm not going to go in anywhere near this. You know, they managed to get me to one session and I was like, forget it, forget it, forget it. And so I was pretty much left to my own devices throughout my teen years to try to make sense of this experience. And I was struggling with my self-worth and ability to trust others, certainly in the realm of relationship and sex and intimacy. That was all out of whack. Mm -hmm. And when I hit, you know, my teen years, I entered into a relationship that I remained in for 10 years, despite it being extremely abusive. And at the end of that relationship, I, my life had just kind of become stripped down. Uh, I had moved into a new apartment. All I had was a sleeping bag and a lamp. And I had one of those critical moments that I think a lot of people have in their lives where you just hit the wall and you think, oh my gosh, like what is going on here? And I just felt this really strong voice inside of me say, Rachel, you have got to get your shit together like right now or you are going to spend the rest of your life just surviving. And it was that moment, Nazanin, that really just launched me. I became obsessed with trying to answer this question, how do I actually heal from sexual abuse? And so I started reading everything I could, and I did my master's in counseling psychology, and I studied neuroscience. And in a lot of ways, I was just trying to get myself together, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and trying to get my life on track. But as this continued to unfold, I was spurred on by friends and family to consider taking what I was discovering that was making such a big difference for me and helping me heal and move on in my life and see if that would translate to other people. So in 2007, I took a crack at that and I started building the Beyond Surviving program and worked with some initial people who were, you know, very generously being my guinea pigs <laughs> because I had, you know, you know, no way of knowing if I was going to be helpful or or hurtful. And, uh, you know, thankfully, 12 years later, this is still the work I do. And it's really wonderful to get to work with men and women all over the country, all over the world, who are ready in that same way to really tackle the experience of trauma and abuse, and learn what they need to learn and develop their capacity to break free from the pain of that abuse and move forward in their lives. Thank you so much, Rachel, for sharing your story with us. I know that it's not easy to talk about these things. I know certainly that it seems like you've you've been through your own journey and you've you've felt comfortable talking about it. And I feel that talking and hearing these stories can be very powerful because Mm. many times when people are struggling with these things, they feel they're alone and the shame gets bigger and more kind of crippling when you you, you think you're the only one who struggles with this. So I think stories like mm-hmm. the story you shared with us can be on its own very empowering. And I love that there are therapists and providers like you and coaches that they help people to work through some of these challenges that caused because of the uh, childhood sexual abuse. Because at times I'm a sex therapist, people coming to me because they want to have great sex. And mm-hmm. when we kind of do the assessment, we realize that they never work through the pain of the trauma. And in order for yeah. them to feel, be able to connect with their bodies, they need to do some of the work before they can reconnect to, with pleasure. And I'm, and I'm glad that mm-hmm. people like you yourself are doing this great work. So there are different kinds of 
abuse and sexual assault, as, as you also are aware of it. And there are like, we have adult assault, like rape, we have childhood sexual abuse, we have kind of like child sexual abuse that's kind of within the family of origin or from someone else. So I'm kind of curious, based on your work, how do you think that childhood sexual abuse is what are some of the unique things specifically related to childhood sexual abuse and uh, what are some of the sexual challenges that people as survivors are experiencing usually? Mm. I mean, I know that every person is uh, unique, but I would imagine there are some similarities that you see. Absolutely. So, yeah, I was thinking about this and in some ways I think we, we land in a couple of different categories. So the first category that I would say starts to show up is when we become hypersexual or hyper aroused. This was certainly my case in my teen and 20s. So sexuality and sex becomes like this arena in which we are trying to use sexuality as a way to understand ourselves, maybe even a way to prove our worth or our value. We become over-sexualized as a result of trauma. And so we might make, I don't really like the term promiscuous, but let's just say we aren't setting a lot of great boundaries around sex and we're maybe indiscriminate about who our, our sexual partners are. So that I think is one key outcome. The other outcome is resistance to sexuality and detachment from sexuality. And so that can happen. um, That doesn't necessarily mean you don't have sex, but it could mean that you absolutely abstain and you try to withhold or, you know, avoid sex. Or when you're having sex, you're dissociating. You're not really present. And then I think another thing that starts to happen in the realm of sexuality is sexual orientation, understanding um, your desires, understanding what you're attracted to, and, and then that can get a little confused. Is this is my attraction here because I was abused? Is this really who I am? And so those questions start to come up as a bisexual woman. That was definitely a piece of the puzzle for me as well, um, trying to sort through that. And if I were to kind of put a big umbrella statement over all of that, I think the biggest question or the biggest trap that survivors of trauma end up falling into in this realm of sex is they begin to choose, they begin to act from a place of obligation. Sex is an obligation. Sex is something that I have to do. Sex is something I should do. My partner's pleasure or needs are more important than mine. And so one of the things that we really work as because because I think this is the foundation of beginning to start to challenge and change our relationship to our bodies and sex and sexuality is how can we get out of that place of obligation about sex and begin to really see it as a choice and something that we're actively choosing and, and get to engage in from that place of our own desires and our own needs. It's very uh, interesting that you're right, that these are the patterns that I see in my clients, uh, whether they are kind of like uh, shying away, they're kind of like they don't want to have sex, they don't want to kind of like, they kind of completely want to disconnect from their sexuality, or they're the category of people that they, they try to connect with sex, like using sex, which is nothing wrong with that. But at times, mm-hmm. they have some challenges with setting boundaries which is, mm-hmm. I feel like, that's part of having great sex is consent and negotiating things and also kind of at least viewing your pleasure equally important as, the, as your partner or partners. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So I am curious to understand the kind of impacts on the brain 
Right, because I yes. when I was at yeah. my uh, master's program, I was working with Dr. Cozzolino, and he published this book on neuroscience of psychotherapy, and he was talking about how whatever we even we're doing as an adult, even going to therapy or having different experiences, changes our brain in a like really meaningful, measurable way. So I'm kind of curious to see what did you find as kind of impact of sexual abuse on uh, children's developing brain? Is it something that people mm. can change if that, that is the impact that you notice? Yeah, thank you for that question, Azanine. This comes up so often. I think survivors often I feel this sensation of like, am I broken? Am I unfixable? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, is this right. the way it's going to be? And that for me was one of the biggest instigators in my work. I, I got that messaging from therapists and counselors. Oh, this is just how it is. You're just going to have to find a way to cope with it. And there was just something about that that just did not ring true for me. And being the stubborn redhead that I am, <laughs> I was like, Let me that's really true. And so um, one of the books that made, that really launched my understanding and helped me along this path was Dan Siegel book, The Developing Mind. Mm -hmm. And what I began to understand is that trauma is like an injury. This was a really big shift for me when I began. This isn't how he states it. It's just from reading his book. This is how I began to understand what had happened to me, that my brain and my nervous system had experienced an injury. And there are very specific interventions that we can use to heal that injury. And so trauma has lasting effects on the brain and on the nervous system unless we impose interventions. And once we start to impose interventions, the brain is so happy to to rewire, to heal. Studies have recently shown that, you know, one of the main areas that is impacted by trauma is the hippocampus Mm -hmm. and that through various activities and things that the hippocampus can repair. It restores, it regenerates, in other words. Um, We see in children who have experienced high levels of trauma that the amygdala is sometimes larger. And that makes a lot of sense because the experience of being in a chronic state of traumatization sets your system into a, a state of alert. So you're always on watch. And so the amygdala is being activated day after day after day after day. So you can kind of imagine it like it's like pumping iron. <laughs> the amygdala, right? It's getting beefy and strong, you know, because it thinks you're in a very high risk situation. I've got to keep you safe. I've got to keep you alive. And But what happens is once you're out of that abusive environment, the amygdala doesn't just go, okay, all right, back to chilling on the beach. Mm -hmm. No, the amygdala gets stuck in that kind of on hyper alert activated place. And so all of that, that stress response system that's going on continues. And so we see anxiety, we see all the PTSD symptoms, we see chronic fatigue, other illnesses happening, exhaustion, lack of focus, because when the amygdala is highly, highly activated, there are other parts of the brain that kind of, I call it going offline. That's not the scientific terminology, folks. <laughs> but that's the way that I imagine it. It's like the amygdala is kind of gobbling up all of the energy. And so there isn't much left for your prefrontal cortex. And so you have trouble focusing, you have trouble um, organizing, planning, 
problem solving. The hippocampus is impacted, so you have trouble with memory, categorization, tracking, these sorts of things. The Broca's area, which is the part of the brain that controls speech, is impacted. And so particularly when you're activated, you find it hard to speak, to find your voice. So, you know, what we know is that absolutely the brain structure, the neuronal pathways, the way that the brain is working is absolutely impacted by trauma. There's no getting out of that. But the very, very good news is that these, this injury is not a permanent injury. And that's why I say to people sometimes to think of it like a broken arm. You know, like if you fell and you broke your arm, you wouldn't say, oh my gosh, I broke my arm. Well, okay, that's just the way it is. All right, I guess I have to live the rest of my life with a broken arm. (laughs) You wouldn't do that. And so it's the same exact thing with your brain. You've experienced an injury with your nervous system. You've experienced an injury. And so the process is to find the tools and the strategies and the modalities that help those systems heal. Thank you so much for that comprehensive review, Rachel. I love that. And I love that you talked about how kind of experiencing trauma can impact our memories, functioning, attention, all of those things. Part of my training, I was a trainee at Long Beach Children Adolescent Program. It was a very kind of a sketchy part of uh, Long Beach. And it was a community mental health facility that I was working at. And every single call I were getting for children, we want to do testing for ADHD and with it, I mean I would say like eight out of ten when the child was there and we were doing assessment it was just they experienced acute trauma and that was the reason that they were experiencing they had issues with attention and kind of the impulsiveness and acting out it wasn't like that they had ADHD or ADD the issue was the trauma and how it was exactly their brain Yes. Nazanin, this is so, so, so important. You know, as, a, as we as a culture and we as a society become more trauma-informed, I'm so, so excited to see the work that's being done in pediatrics, that's being done in schools, particularly the work of like uh, Nadine Burke-Harris, who wrote The mm-hmm. Deepest Well, um, which is launched from Vincent Felitti's work that's all the way from the 80s that has been, it's taken us all this time, what is that, three decades, um, to actually get his work into almost the mainstream. We're almost there. <laughs> I mean, Oprah talked about ACEs, so we're close. We're very close. Right. <laughs> but yeah, and so, so when, you know, when kids are being brought in, you know, to the doctor's office with this ADHD, oh my gosh, they can't focus, all that stuff, behavior problems, to have pediatricians understand that their first step is to do an ACE screening and to assess the acute childhood experiences that that child has had, because that is absolutely so many of the, so much of the time, the underlying cause. And so if we can get our teachers aware of that, if we can have parents aware of that, you know, then absolutely, we can start to intervene sooner that rather than later, you know, I'd love to be put out of business, honestly. <laughs> so, um, you know, and that's one of the pathways towards that is making sure that people really understand the underlying impact of trauma and that what you're seeing someone going through might not be this, it might actually be unresolved, untreated trauma. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, as an adult, many of my clients, the sex therapy clients in detail, what they like and kind of ask about the erotic blueprint and when was the first time they felt certain ways. And what I learned and I realized, and I think it, it kind of congruent with what I read, is that many of our sexual preferences and erotic blueprint gets developed during our early childhood or very mm-hmm. early adolescent. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of curious if, if someone experienced young, like childhood sexual abuse, does that impact their sexual preference and erotic blueprint? And what is the mm. connection that you're seeing? Yeah, thank you for that question. So what we know about the experience of sexual trauma is that it collapses the experience of abuse, pain, with sexuality, desire, and needs. And so these two things, it's like they become associated. They get added up together and connected. And so a lot of survivors of trauma and abuse have this experience of my my sexuality is bad. My desires are bad. Sex just leads to pain or abuse or trauma. And so unraveling all of that in order to uncover your authentic sexuality, I think is a big piece of the healing puzzle. I don't think that trauma changes our sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. I think that I'm a bisexual woman. I don't think that the experience of trauma made me bisexual, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think Many of my clients will ask things like, well, I have this fantasy um, about maybe being dominated. Is that because of the trauma? And when I work with all of those sorts of things, it goes right back to what I was saying earlier. Like, can we investigate where that's coming from? What need is being met? Is that a place of obligation? Is that a repetition of an old pattern? Or do you really like, get off on that, right? Does that really fulfill a desire? Does that really, you know, turn you on? Or somewhere along the way, did someone tell you that this is the way you're supposed to be as a woman in bed? And then therefore, you're just, you know, doing that. And it's almost like play acting. But so as we unpack that and unravel it, and as I see my clients come into that place of really powerfully choosing, this is what I want, this is what I desire, then there's like this place of ownership, you know, that they start to have about their bodies and about their sexuality and this confidence. Uh, You know, speaking personally, I think most of the sex that I had in my life was performative, was from that place of obligation. This is what I'm supposed to do or and very detached. And in my own healing journey, taking space to really be with my body, check in with my pleasure. Um, A lot of that was through self-touch and self-massage and, you know, investigating my desires and noticing what turned me on, what turned me off and also updating my rules. I think that was, you know, one of the things that I really noticed that a lot of my beliefs about sex were adolescent, right? Mm -hmm. I was making choices about sex and responding to sex in my, you know, twenties and thirties based on beliefs and kind of rules of engagement, so to speak, that were developed when I was like 10 to 13. I was like, shit, I've got to update my understanding here and grow into that, you know, maturity around my sexuality. 
I don't know if I answered your question. That's no, me, but. yes. No, I think that's, <laughs> okay. that is so interesting. And I think accurate that people is like kind of like navigating what part of it is like part of my own sexual script. And part, yeah. part of it is that I'm kind of like trying to adopt and kind of like cope with expectation from the society that I, I got to be mm. certain way. I got to perform mm. certain way in bedroom uh, so it's like people are not necessarily in tune with what they want they're just kind of like at times as you said it's more about the performance and how how does that look and yeah it's it's a very sensitive and tricky subject because I know for example with BDSM some some people think that and some group of people it's reenactment of their trauma and some mm-hmm. other clinician and therapists, they don't, they don't necessarily think that. They think that's, that's not necessarily connected. And I think it's kind of a, based on my experience, it's kind of an individual base. And I think yeah. the clients kind of like talk to them about, but what, what purpose does this serve for you? And does it work for you or not? Correct. That gets yeah. To that. yeah, I think that's such a valid point. You know, one thing that you said there sparked uh, just a thought for me, which is that, you know, we, sex, sex is such a many layered thing, right? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of what we're looking at when we're talking about healing from abuse and trauma is figuring out which of these behaviors, which of these things in my life are me and which of these things are adaptive or protective behaviors. So, for example, I had a client who was, you know, really good at setting boundaries but almost too good <laughs> and so good at setting boundaries that she was pretty much eliminating people from her life, right? Mm-hmm. And and on one hand, you would look at that behavior and you think, oh, that's just who she is. And, you know, it's just, she's just a really strong woman and she knows what she wants. And, but when we got in there and we started kind of picking at that a little bit, we actually started to recognize that this high level of boundary setting that she was engaged in was protective, an attempt to say, if I keep people out of my life by setting this bar so, so high, then I'm not going to get hurt. Mm -hmm. And so is she now a person who doesn't set boundaries? Of course not, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. But now she has it in balance, right? And so I think it can be the same thing in our sexuality when we're exploring. You know, there, there are periods like who I am as a sexual being today is not the same. And what I desire and what I'm turned on by is not the same as when I was, you know, 13, 20, 25, 30, you know, I'm 42 now. And so I think the other piece of this puzzle is allowing ourselves to evolve, and if we go through a period of our lives where we're exploring, let's say, something like BDSM, and maybe it is in the realm of I'm trying to recreate and trying to understand and get a different outcome. And, you know, re- we do that with all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So I'm not exactly sure why people would say, oh, that's a terrible, bad thing in the area of sexuality. Right. Like we have people go back and imagine standing in front of the abuser and saying what you wish you could have said. Mm-hmm. Right. As a way to complete that energy of that experience. And I think we can use our bodies and we can use our sexuality in that way with the caveat that, again, it can get out of balance, right? So if you're engaging in that, but it's not actually leading to a resolution of something or it actually is, you know, re-traumatizing your system, you know, then we've got to watch out for those sorts of nuances and traps that we can fall into. 
Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I love that you're talking about people kind of checking in with themselves and truly kind of thinking about, is it working for me? Is it like help me to get closer to the goal that I have? Or is it kind of like keep me stuck in this loop of uh, hypervigilant and feeling scared and not moving forward? Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that you mentioned that the recovery is possible. I love that you mentioned that uh, it's not like a, like you have to live with this broken mess. Right. That, you know, this is something that's not reversible. So let me learn to use my other hand and like strengthen my legs. Mm-hmm. So I hear that you're saying that it's, it is possible for people to work through their trauma and create a fulfilling sexual lives. But what would that look like? What are some of the steps that people need to accomplish or go through in order to reach that step? So one of the things that folks can find on my website is a free checklist on the three stages of recovery. Um, One of the ways that I frame and think about the healing journey is in this way. And I lay it out in a linear way because that's just, you know, the way our minds think and it helps us make sense of things with the understanding that, you know, sometimes we're in one place in one area of our life and in another place in another area of our, our life. But generally speaking, we go through these stages of victim, survivor, and what I call beyond surviving. So this victim stage, Nezanine, is when we're in that place of denial. We're not ready to look at the abuse and the trauma. We are maybe pretending that everything's okay. I'm good here. Nothing to see. <laughs> right? <laughs> everything's just fun. And, and in a lot of ways, our life can be working in that stage. We might be excelling at work or in school, but usually there's an area in our life that is collapsed. And mo- most often that's in the area of relationships. And, and so, or maybe finances. And so we start to feel this pressure of like, there's something not quite right here. I'm still off. I'm still not feeling good most days. I feel highly triggered. And so there comes a moment where you you decide, okay, I've got to look at this thing. I've got to take it on. And so that moment of acknowledgement, it's like a bridge into the survivor stage. It's what helps you step into that place in your journey where you begin the next step of this process, which is to begin to name and acknowledge the experience of trauma. We can't heal what we won't talk about. Love that. And I think so important to kind of looking at some pilates checklists you talked about to kind of gauge where you are in your recovery. Absolutely. And then once we've spent some time in that survivor stage and we begin to understand, oh, this is why I don't trust anyone. Oh my gosh, this is why I have outbursts all the time. This is why I feel miserable about myself. This is where we're starting to understand the connection between trauma and the experiences that we're having in our lives. And so at some point, we get fed up with that. (laughs) Okay, I understand it. I get it. But what do I do about it? Mm-hmm. And that's the bridge. That's the question that bridges you from the survivor to the beyond surviving stage. And in the beyond surviving stage, the focus of my work in particular is really about two things. It's one, helping people get complete and resolve the past trauma. That involves things like releasing the shame and the guilt, understanding how to regulate their nervous system, getting out of that, you know, unhealthy nervous system regulation, the activation, always being in the stress response. To my mind, it's actually hard to do any healing work until you have those tools Mm -hmm. because your system otherwise is just too out of whack. You're too vulnerable. You don't have enough resiliency to take on things like looking at the shame, building relationships, these sorts of things. And so as we get resolved about the past, 
then that creates this pathway to look at what are the skills and tools that you need in order to live an empowered life that you did not get to develop because you were going through trauma, because you've had a dysregulated nervous system. So these are like the basic, how do I communicate my needs? How do I set boundaries? What does it mean to actually trust another person? How, you know, and then into the realm of intimacy and sexuality. So, for context, my program is 16 sessions, and we do not look at sexuality until session 13. Mm-hmm. It's close to the end right. of the journey. <laughs> and so when my clients come to me and they're like, man, like my sex life is messed up, my husband's pissed off, or my wife is pissed off, you know, and upset, I say, all right, we're going to get there, I promise. But we've got to lay in these other foundations and clear the, clear the shame, right? Help you tap back into your needs reinstate powerful choice for you give you you know make sure you have a voice so that you can speak up for yourself nervous system regulation so if you're having sex and you start to dissociate you know what to do and so I think this is one of the things that I love the most about my work Nizanine, is my background is actually in education and um, I think very much like that and so the program that I've developed in the step-by-step process I think it just helps break down this thing that feels like a big old ball of spaghetti mm-hmm. um, that's hard to unravel and makes things, you know, simple, doable, and even fun. We can even have fun and joy in this process of healing. And so that checklist that I was mentioning is great because it will talk about the different stages and then it's going to talk about what are the specific goals of each of those stages. And I think most importantly, what type of support do you need at each of those stages? One of the ways that people get re-traumatized is, you know, they might sit down with a therapist and maybe they haven't yet done the work of the survivor step, but they're trying to press it to challenge the challenge work that happens in the beyond surviving and then they collapse or they can't do it because they're not ready and then that ends up creating re-traumatization and shame so understanding the type of support that's going to help you the best based on where you are in your journey i think is really critical i love that and i love that it's structured uh, because sometimes it can be very uh overwhelming for people kind of thinking about okay i'm just going to talk about this horrible things have that mm-hmm. happened to me processing mm-hmm. it i don't know month after month without knowing that what direction we're going or without having the toolbox that you mentioned that you have in your program because i think having the tools are essential i think we yeah. can all talk about this very painful memory if I know that like after you left my office you will have the ability to regulate yourself and you will not get re-traumatized understand that exposure at time is part of the war mm-hmm. you want to have the entire toolbox it's like if you have only hammer and you want to kind of fix something that's not going to work so you got to exactly. have the entire kind of like toolbox to work through this thing. And I, and I love that you you are so informed and you have all these wonderful tools. So I, I would imagine uh, some of our listeners want to kind of check out the checklist that you mentioned and kind of they, they want to get a hold of you. So what would be the best way for them to kind of check out those resources? Absolutely. Please come visit me at rachelgrantcoaching.com. That is the best place to start. You'll find the checklist there on the main page. You'll also see a place where you can apply for a complimentary Discover Your Genuine Self session, and we can explore the possibility of working together. There are lots of great resources. One of the things that's really important to 
to me in my business is that there is something available to everyone regardless of uh, where they are financially. So I have a free monthly support group. I have a blog. I have a podcast. I have YouTube videos and um, I have a Facebook group. And so there are lots of great resources that you can tap into. And then as you get closer and to thinking about wanting to enroll in the Beyond Surviving program and participate in that, then you can schedule a consultation and we can explore that. But yeah, come visit me at rachelgrantcoaching.com. Awesome. You guys, I leave it on the show notes. So if, if you didn't get a chance to write it down, it's going to be in the show notes. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on, on the show and sharing your knowledge and uh, resources and all the wonderful experiences that you cultivated throughout the years. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a joy. I hope you found my conversation with Rachel helpful and it helped with shedding some light around the struggles and stages that people might go through when they are recovering from sexual abuse. At the end, I wanted to ask you guys to please let me know what are some of the other topics that we haven't talked about and you want to learn more about it because I find myself kind of recycling some of the topics. And I want to make sure that I'm talking about just topics that are exciting and informative for my listeners. I did this survey last year and I got tons of good information from that. But if there is a topic that we haven't talked about, feel free to shoot me an email at drmoali at sexologypodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll talk next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.